0: Mark chapter fourteen, Friday. Uh, Friday. We'll see you Friday. Yeah. Mark chapter fourteen verses thirty-two, all the way through Mark fifteen verse fifteen. Mark fourteen verse thirty-two, all the way through Mark fifteen verse fifteen. That's fifty-five verses we're going through this morning. <laughs> Woo! Nail it. Uh, because really, as we go through this last week of Jesus's life, and we go day by day through the final week. We have to really fill in everything that happens from the moment the Last Supper ended all the way to his crucifixion on Friday. Because we're going to be celebrating uh, and remembering Jesus' crucifixion this Friday at our Good Friday service. It's going to be at 6 o'clock at the Alton Bay Christian Conference Center. We're using their youth building. It's going to be a really beautiful, uh, intimate time. And just a time for us to celebrate and remember and mourn what Jesus did on the cross for us the center of history, the center of what we believe, the center of everything. So I'm really looking forward to that time. It's going to be a time of scripture, then reflection and worship. We're going to do rotations of reading scripture, reflecting on that scripture, and then responding to that scripture through song. Um, Only an hour long from six to seven, so please set that time aside. Uh, I think it's going to be really sweet. So like I said, we're going through the last week of Jesus' life, and this morning we're going to be thinking about what happened after the Last Supper and before Jesus' crucifixion. And that's a lot to go through. Um, that includes his betrayal, it, it, it includes his arrest, his desertion from his, by his disciples, and then his trial, his beating, and then his condemnation. That's a lot. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this scripture like we do every week, but at a slightly quicker pace. We're going to have to jump over a couple verses, and I'll fill you in uh, on it so that we can get through all of it. But I want to encourage you later on this week, go back and read this passage again. Read it slowly. Uh, I believe the Holy Spirit will show you more (laughs) than even when we go through it now. So Mark chapter 14, 32, all the way through Mark 15, 15. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into the beginning of that passage. Oh, Lord, we are your people. Um, And we can call ourselves your people because of what you did on the cross. Because when you died, Lord, you won for yourself a people. Uh, You paid for our sins. You made us new. You gave us life. All of us who will trust you, who will believe in you, who will accept salvation by our belief in your sacrificial death. And if we do that, we are your people, Lord. So we, the church, are a group of people who have made that decision. Who, by faith, have come to you. And so, Father, as we, your people, come together as the church to open your word, to worship through community, worship through song, and now worship through looking at the word of God, we pray that you would change us through this powerful, powerful word. I pray that this wouldn't just be another sermon, just another worship service, but that this would be a time in our lives where we get to look into your word and actually be, be changed in the process. That today is a day that we take one little step closer to you, little, one step closer to you further in our discipleship, Lord. Lord, because your word is powerful and living and active and true, uh, we expect it to work in our lives. Expect it to change the way that we think and act, Lord. So change us, we pray, as we look at Mark 14 and 15. We give this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark 14, 32, starting through 41. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and he found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So after supper, the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples did what they did every day. They left the town of Jerusalem, crossed across the Kidron Valley. If we can put the map up here on the screen. They went across the Kidron Valley, up that road over the Mount of Olives to stay in the town of Bethany like they did every night. But we actually read in John 18, chapter 2, that one of their rhythms, one of their habits on their journey back over to Bethany is they would stop right there at that little square called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right at the crossroads as they cross up the Mount of Olives, right out on the bottom of the Mount of Olives. And we read in John 18, too, that they would stop there to pray. We also read in John 18, too, that Judas knew that this was their habit. And so Judas, knowing that this was probably what was going to happen that day, when he left for dinner, or left the dinner, he went to gather the, the, the soldiers, went to gather the Jewish leaders, and in so doing, bring them to a place that was free and away from the crowds where they could arrest Jesus, there at the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this time, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus went off to pray. And he asks his disciples to sit up and keep watch as he prays. And what we see here is a moving, a moving, intimate, powerful scene. We see him with his closest friends here, very sorrowful, even to death, it says. And we read that he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He cries, Abba, Father, he begged, remove this cup from me. This cup being a symbol in the Old Testament of God's wrath. He says, remove this cup from me, he begs. Because Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus is not unaware of what the next couple hours hold for him. He knows that in that time, a close friend is about to betray him. An even closer friend is going to deny him three times. All of his disciples are going to desert him. He would soon be tortured, mocked, and killed. And even worse, maybe worst of all, he was about to bear the weight of sin and shame for all of humanity for all time. Even as his father, for the first time in history, the father that he has spent eternity united with, for the first time, separates from him and turns his back on him. There is horror coming for Jesus in the next couple hours. So he begs, God, take this cup from me. But then he says yet not what i will but what you will and we see his humanity because he asks for it not to happen but he submits also to the father he is resigning himself to his father's will committing to obey it committing to follow through the plan that the father has given him committing not to do what his flesh wants but rather to do what his father wants And in Jesus, what we see right here is a picture of strength, a picture of commitment, a picture of boldness and obedience. While in the meantime, in this very same passage, we see the exact opposite in his disciples. Because while Jesus is being bold and obedient to the desire of God for his life, the purpose that he sent him into the world, his disciples are not strong and self-controlled and obedient. Rather, three times they fall asleep. Jesus says of them that their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. And then the third time he finds them asleep. This is what he says in Mark 14, 41 and 42. He says, it is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so we know Judas has been busy. Ever since he left the supper, he went to collect uh, the, the officials, the soldiers, and the leaders. We actually read that in John 18, 3, where we read that Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. He gathered the troops. He brought them to Jesus. The hour had finally come, like he says right here in this passage. And when Jesus says the hour has come, he's not just talking about the hour has come in his own life. Yes, it is true that the the whole reason Jesus came into the world was for this hour that was about to come. The whole reason Jesus came into the world was to die this death in the place of humanity. But this is also the hour that we've been waiting for since Genesis 3 at the beginning of Scripture. All of Scripture points forward to this moment where death is going to be destroyed. The hour has come. The hour that all history is pointing forward to. And we see it now in Mark 14, 43 through 50. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him. He went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi, which means teacher, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from another gospel that this is Peter here. And Jesus rebukes Peter for doing that. And then he turns his attention to the Jewish leaders. And this is what he says. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. He's saying, you cowards. I was with you every single day in the temple. At any point you could have arrested me. At any point you could have grabbed me. But one of the things that we've seen as we've been going through this series is that the issue is that the crowds think Jesus is the Messiah. At least many of them do. And Jerusalem's full of Passover pilgrims who are there thinking, could this man be the Christ? And so what would happen if the Jews just went and laid hands on Jesus? It could start a riot. It could be a problem. And so Jesus is calling them out. And he's saying, you guys are being cowardly for waiting for a time when I am away from the crowds. When you can arrest me by stealth and secret. And then he says this. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Last week in Matthew 26, we read, The Son of Man goes as it was written of him. And we thought last week about how what Jesus is saying is that what is happening to him, this betrayal that's about to happen to him, it was the plan all along. That God had predetermined from the beginning of time that this was the way that he was going to deal with sin. He was going to send his son. His son was going to die for the sin of the world. Let the scriptures be fulfilled, he says. Let Jesus be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver from Zechariah 11. Let Jesus, the suffering servant, be pierced for our transgressions. This was the plan. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. And so again, we see Jesus resigning to the will of his father. Boldly and obediently. Submitting to the plan of his father, even though it was hard. And while Jesus submits to the father, here in this passage, in verse 50, in the next verse, right again, we see this. And they all left him and fled. Are you starting to see a pattern here in this passage? As we go through this long passage, we're going to see two themes over and over and over again. And we've already seen him twice in the first couple of verses. Jesus shows his strength by obediently resigning to the will of the fathers, and the disciples show their weakness by fleeing away. Let's jump down to verse 53. This is what happens next. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying... We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that, I made, that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Really what they're doing is they're misquoting and misunderstanding John 2.19. Where Jesus is talking about his own body. We go on. Yet even about this testimony, even about something that actually was said, they did not agree. So these people, they couldn't get the testimony together. They knew what they wanted. They knew the condemnation they wanted to seek. They weren't seeking justice. They were seeking an excuse to execute Jesus. But they couldn't get their stories to align. Finally, they turned to Jesus in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? In other words, don't you hear what you're being accused of? Don't you hear what they're saying? say something. But he remained silent and made no answer. Now this is a, this is a fascinating passage. Even though the men were accusing him of things that weren't lining up, even though it would have been very easy for Jesus to say, what are you talking about? This doesn't even make sense. He doesn't say anything. Why wouldn't he defend himself? What they're trying to, Mark's trying to make really clear in this passage is that they don't really have a hook to hang their coat on here. But Jesus, while he could have spoken up and said, look, this doesn't make any sense, he remains silent. He lets this false testimony lie without defending himself. And the question that we have to ask is, is why? Why wouldn't he speak up against these false rumors and these slanders that have been thrown out against him? What we see in this passage is that Jesus is going to his death on purpose. (laughs) Even though he could have stood up, even though he could have denied what they were saying rightfully, and defended himself from these accusations, he is strongly and boldly and obediently resigning to the will of the Father. Going through with this, not because the men were more powerful than him, because he, in his strength, decided to submit to the God who he is in union with. This was God's plan. And in so doing, he's fulfilling the words of Isaiah, verses 53, verse 7. Chapter 53, verse 7, where we read, He, the suffering servant, was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Because this suffering servant that God was going to send, this one that we now know is Jesus Christ, came. He was the Lamb of God. And rather than opening up his mouth and defending himself, rather than saying something to complain or or to, to try to subvert this plan, he remained silent. He embraced it because this was the Father's will. What boldness, what strength Jesus has in this passage. It's amazing. And the passage goes on in 1461. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He's direct, he's clear with his question this time. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. (laughs) Subtle, isn't it? Because this is probably the clearest statement of Jesus' divinity in his entire ministry. Jesus goes, tells them this right to their face. And man, if he wanted to get off the hook, this is not a good time to say something like this, Jesus. But what he does in this passage is first, he claims the name of God. He says, I am. The Hebrew word, Yahweh. He uses the name of God, telling them, I am who you say I am. I am God. And not only that. Because throughout the rest of what he says right there, he's actually quoting Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. He's quoting this passage. Let me read it for you. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples... And nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus says to the leaders, I am. I am God. And not only that, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. I am the one who is going to come and is going to rule over all peoples. and all nations. In all languages. And the high priest knew the book of Exodus, where they heard the name of God, I am. The high priest knew the book of Daniel. They knew about this prophecy. So when Jesus goes to them and says this, they get it. They know what he's acclaiming right here. And so Mark 14, 63 through 65, we read this. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? So he's saying, forget the witnesses. They can't get their stories together. He has said enough in this one sentence for us to condemn him to death. And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They made their decision they found the condemnation that they were looking for. They found their excuse to kill him. But the problem is, the Jews don't have the power to execute. The Jews don't have a right to put somebody to death in this day. It was only the Romans that had the right to put someone to death. So as we jump down, let's jump down to 15 verse 1. Uh, We're going to pass over the part where Peter denies uh, Jesus three times. Uh, While that's important, and while I want to encourage you to go back and read that, uh, we're going to continue on with the main plot line right here. Um, 15 verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a uh, a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Remember we saw that last week with with Judas? He says, you have said so. It's an expression, it's an idiom. He's saying, yes, I am. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. So back in mid-December, we actually took a look at this passage, if you remember. Uh, And when we looked at this, what we saw is that what Pilate was doing when he was interviewing Jesus, trying Jesus, really, was he was trying to figure out this one question. Was Jesus a king that would be a political threat to Rome? Was Pilate claiming, or sorry, was Jesus claiming that he was a king that would be a problem that Caesar wouldn't be too happy about? And through his conversation, what Jesus basically tells Pilate is, look, I have come to bear witness about myself. I have come to bear witness to the truth. And my kingdom is not of this world because if it was, my army would be beating down your doors. My kingdom is from another world. Pilate doesn't understand that, but what we see Pilate doing in that passage is recognizing that Jesus wasn't the threat that he thought he might have been. Jesus was not uh, somebody deserving death because of that belief. Pilate might have thought that he was crazy, but he didn't deserve death for it. And so Pilate, after questioning him, comes to this conclusion that he's innocent. But despite his innocence, Jesus here again made no further answer. He opened not his mouth. He would not defend himself yet again. He didn't defend himself from the Jews and he didn't defend himself from Pilate either. And man, if we remember back, he didn't even let his followers defend himself in the garden. Jesus is going with the plan of his father. Again, he is submitting to the will of his father. And Pilate is amazed because he didn't defend himself. And while Pilate didn't know why, we do. We know why Jesus didn't defend himself here. And it blows our mind that he would love us so much that he would do this. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to Mark 15, verses 6 through 15. This is the end of the passage. Now at the feast, he, that's, that's Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner of whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowds came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, do you want me to re- release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So Pilate saw Jesus was innocent. Pilate saw he didn't deserve death. Um, and he saw the crookedness of the situation. He saw the mindset that caused Jesus to be put in this position in the first place. And so he's trying to really take advantage of this custom to release an innocent man. Rather than releasing a guilty man. It, it actually just, it just makes sense. <laughs> we go on in verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have him release for them... Barabbas, instead. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What, What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he does three things. He released to them Barabbas. Number two, having Jesus, having scourged Jesus, that's whipped Jesus, tortured Jesus. Number three, he delivered him up to be crucified. And we just walked with Jesus through his betrayal, through his arrest, through his desertion, through his trial, and through his condemnation. And Jesus has now been offered up to be crucified. And we went through all that really at warp speed. We rushed through it. But as we went through it, we saw two things over and over and over again. Two themes over again, repeated. One, the bold, steadfast obedience of Christ. His resignation to the Father's will. And number two, the weak, fickle cowardice of people around him. The bold, steadfast obedience of Christ and the weak, fickle cowardice of people around him. We see both of those things throughout the passage. We see the bold, steadfast obedience of Christ right from the beginning where he says, remove this cup from me, verse 36, yet not what I will, but what you will. Again, in verse 41, he says, The hour has come. He knows it's coming. He submits to that. Verse 49, Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let what happens, what must happen now. Verse 61, He remains silent, making no answer, submitting to what was playing out right in front of him. Verse 62, Saying something that does not help his situation, when he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then in 15.5, where he named, Made no answer yet again, and amazed Pilate in doing so. He is indeed the lamb led to the slaughter who would open not his mouth. Because it's clear over and over again in this passage, Jesus has resigned himself to this fate. He has willingly submitted to it. And at the beginning, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to tor- be tortured. He doesn't want to die. But he's doing it because he's obeying the will of his father. And I mean, contrast that with the weak fleeting cowardice of the people in this story his disciples weak fickle and cowardly they fled away from jesus at his arrest they slept over and over again at the beginning when they asked when he had asked him to pray the leaders were weak fickle and cowardly when they hid behind their anonymity in the garden and also when they misused justice condemning him without two witnesses which is the old testament way of doing things they broke that law the the crowds were weak fickle and cowardly shifting from sunday where they said hosanna blessed is he who comes into the name of comes in the name of the lord to crucify him on friday And even Pilate was weak, fickle, and cowardly when he perverted justice for the sake of peace in the land. I mean, what a contrast. I mean, looking through this long passage, we see that contrast all over the place. But it's that contrast that shows us something truly beautiful. Because it's the bold, steadfast obedience of Christ. That's going to lead him to die for weak, fickle, and cowardly people. The people in this story did nothing to deserve the amazing love that Jesus is about to pour out for them. And when we see the contrast of Jesus' holiness and people's sinfulness. That's what makes the cross truly beautiful. Because there's no reason and that makes sense. That a holy God would die for sinful people. That a bold, a bold, steadfast, obedient, holy God would die for weak, fleeting, cowardly people. They didn't deserve it. They turned every chance they got from Jesus in this story. And the thing is, be free, we don't deserve it either. We don't deserve this amazing love of Jesus. Any more than they did. Because we turn away from Jesus just as much in our own lives, and if we trace history throughout, we would find over and over again stories of a holy God pursuing and loving sinful people. That's the story we see in this passage, that's the story of history, and be free if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that's your story, that's my story. And so we see two truths, right? in this passage, the bold, steadfast obedience of Christ and the weak, fickle, cowardice of people. And the amazing thing that stands out to me right at the end is that these are the true core truths of the gospel. The truth number one is this. You are far more sinful than you think you are. The gospel starts with this truth. You are far more sinful than you think you are. Do you think that you've done anything to deserve the love of Jesus Christ? You're wrong. We are far more sinful, far more separated, far more broken than we can really comprehend. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that's only the first truth. The second truth of the gospel is that Jesus loves you far more than you think he does. We are far more sinful than we think we are, but God loves you far more than you think he ever possibly could. And that contrast, that's we have to sit in the middle of that to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to understand we don't deserve this love, but we have been given this love. We sit in the middle and we just say, why? How amazing. And when we sit in the middle and we feel the tension of these two things, our sinfulness, but also how beloved we are, that's where we sit and worship him and say, God, I don't deserve it, but I receive it. And because I've received it, I can have a relationship with you. And we just say, hallelujah. That's the core of everything we believe. This thing we call the gospel, the good news. The good news that though we don't deserve the love of God, we have been given the love of God through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know and we say this truth over and over again. Every single week, I feel like, we talk about this. I was thinking just this morning about how Paul told the Corinthian church I have endeavored to know nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. And Father, that's, that's our story. <laughs> we want to know nothing more, nothing higher than what it means that you came, loved, and died for us, Lord. It's the core of everything. And it's such a gift. Lord, we are the luckiest of people. We are the blessed people. You have chosen us, you love us, you died for us, and Father, because of that, that changes every little thing in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that the truth of this message, the truth of, of your message, the truth of, of the word of God, this good news of your sacrificial death, the good news of your undeserved love to us, would be something that motivates us Motivates us in so many ways. Number one, to worship you. Number one, just to come to you and say, I don't know why you would do this for me, but thank you. (laughs) Number two, that it would motivate us to share that amazing truth with the people we love, that they would come to know it and believe it and be changed by it, Lord. We long for our neighbors and our friends and our family to know this truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would be motivated by it to share it with them. People who don't know how loved they are. Father, thank you for this gift. We give this morning to you because we give our lives to you. Continue to change us with this truth, Lord, in Jesus' name.